Uh, well, this morning I'm excited because we're going to conclude the second chapter of our King Jesus sermon series that we've been in for a long time. Now, this is going to be a four-chapter series, so we've still got two chapters to go. But if you remember, this sermon series is all about what it means to submit our entire lives to the lordship of Jesus as king in our lives. And as we've been working through these first two chapters of the sermon series, what we've been doing is building a theological foundation, all right? Every single sermon so far in this series has been summarized by a simple, short theological statement. And, and all I mean by theological statement is it's a statement that summarizes what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, and what we believe God has called us to do. And so this morning, as we conclude chapter two, what I'm gonna do is insert into this foundation that we're building, the last building block. And so you'll see in your notes there, we've listed them all out for you. There's a space for you to write down this morning's statement and really encourage you, if you've missed uh, any parts of this series, to go to our website or our podcast and get caught up on it. Because here's where I'm hoping we're gonna go and what we're gonna do, Lord willing, with this sermon series. I I don't just want to show you theologically what it means for Jesus to be our king. Like, I don't want it to just be conceptual. I want to show us practically, in everyday life, what it means for Jesus to be our king. And so, we've been building this theological foundation, and then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little bit of a break through August uh, from the series, Then back in September, we'll come back and we're gonna do chapter three. It's called The King Reigns. We're gonna be talking about how does Jesus reign as our king in everyday life. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on a number of very specific topics and situations that we might face. Topics like work and suffering and doubt and anger, and money, and relationships, and sexuality, and and all of these things. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna study the scriptures to see what does the Bible say about these things, and then we're gonna stand upon this foundation that we've been building and ask the question, so what does this mean? How do I live my life around this topic with Jesus as king? So that's where we're going. But this morning, we gotta add in that last building block to our theological foundation. And so we began this whole series with chapter one, the king rejected, and we studied how God created us, how we rejected him as our king, and we wanted to be our own king. And then we started chapter two, the king redeems. And what we studied is how God is eager to restore us to his kingdom. God wants to be reconciled. God wants us to be back in his kingdom and and worshiping him as king. So what he does is sends his son Jesus to give of his life to forgive us, to give of his life to show us the way of the kingdom, to show us that there's everlasting joy when we put ourselves away and we follow Jesus with our entire lives and let him be king of our life. And so last Sunday what we did is we We studied one of two responses that we have when we come to Christ and accept his forgiveness. And the the first one was 
I will surrender all to King Jesus and make him the center of my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow him for the rest of my days. And we looked at how we actually do that last week. And this morning, we're gonna look at the second response that we have when we come to faith in Jesus. And that is today's theological statement, the final block in our foundation. If you wanna write it in your notes, it's this. It'll be on the screen behind me. I will commit to the church and we will be the aroma of Christ together. And you say aroma? What do you mean by that? Well, that's where we're gonna go to, our, go to the Bible for that one. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 is our text this morning and we'll see what it means to be the aroma of Christ let me give you a little bit of context. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he encourages the church in this section that we're gonna read with a truth that Paul finds encouragement in for his ministry. And so here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men and women of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Paul says that the purpose of the church, he uses we and us language here, and the purpose of our ministry should be to spread the aroma, the fragrance of Christ and his kingdom to the Lord. And there are gonna be people who smell that aroma, that fragrance, and they're gonna be attracted to the church. They're gonna hear the gospel and come to faith. And there are going to be people who smell that fragrance and because they hate God, they will be repulsed and ultimately perish. But what we see is that one of the purposes of the church is to be the aroma of Christ to the world. So our church offices um, are just down the street and we're right next to Guapo's uh, rotisserie chicken. And I always make fun of Nick because literally every time we walk out of our office together, like, and if the wind is blowing in the right direction, Nick always goes without fail. Oh, man, do you smell that? <laughs> oh, it smells amazing. Right, because we're smelling the rotisserie chicken coming our way, and it draws you in. It lures you in. I mean, you, are, you can't help but think of a half chicken and yucca fries when you smell that because it draws us in. And so here is Paul's vision for the church, that it would be filled with people who live their lives together in such a way it puts out this aroma of what the kingdom of God is like. When I smell it, when I taste it, 
when I see it, it's a, it's a glimpse of what God's kingdom is like. And when they get that whiff, they experience just a little bit God's kingdom. Because the church is filled with people who've submitted their lives to Jesus as king and they follow him. So the, the question is, does the church smell like, feel like, give us a taste of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God being paradise. A place where you are fully known and fully loved. A place where your soul is at peace and there is no fear, no self-consciousness, no insecurity. A place where there's no division, no prejudice, no agenda other than celebrating our God and enjoying him together. So let's be honest, if you polled humanity, I'm not sure that a high percentage of people on this planet would say that when they think about the church, it's a similar experience to passing a Cinnabon in the mall. But think about that for a second. When we look at our text this morning, what we don't read is that the church should be a similar experience to passing a Cinnabon in the mall because everybody loves that experience. Everyone smells Cinnabon and is drawn. What we read in our text is that the church should spread the aroma of Christ and his kingdom and to some people that aroma is going to draw them in and to others it's not. However, some churches, they try to be Cinnabon and create an experience for people that will be pleasing to everyone, to draw everyone in and work very hard to make sure there is no one that could be repelled or offended by our ministry. While other churches, if I'm honest, are so entrenched in their brand of fundamentalism and prejudice that it's like walking into a locker room at the gym. And it is repulsive. So when it comes to this call upon the church to be the aroma of the kingdom of God, there is a, a balance that we need to be aware of. We need to make sure that even though we say we smell like the kingdom of God, that we actually do smell like the kingdom of God. So I, I could spend a 20-part sermon series on different scriptures about how we do this and how we put out the aroma of God's kingdom. And maybe someday in the future we'll do that 20-part sermon series. But this morning, I just, wanna, I just wanna give us two ways. Two ways that we are the aroma of Christ and his kingdom that I think we can pull out of our text this morning. And so he, here they are. We are the aroma of Christ and his kingdom to the world and all the people around us, in our love for one another, and in our love for the outsider. But before we dig into these two, let me, let me just define the word love for you. Our, our passage this morning calls, us, calls the church the aroma of Christ. And so when I talk about the way the church loves people, what I wanna specifically talk about is the way Jesus loves people. We're gonna model it after him. And there are two ways that I want to highlight how Jesus loves people, because 
same thing. There's tons of ways Jesus loves, but I wanna highlight two, and this is really important because it's when we emphasize one aspect of Jesus' love over the other aspect of Jesus' love that we begin to be unbalanced. These two aspects of Jesus' love need to hold each other in tension, almost be like a checks and balance. And when we go with one aspect at the expense of the other, we're not loving as Jesus loved, and we're not the aroma of God's kingdom. So, so here are the two aspects. The, the two aspects of Jesus' love that I'm talking about is presence and truth. Jesus was present with people, and Jesus spoke truth to people. Jesus loved us and the people around him through being fully present with them and, and also through telling the truth, even if it got him killed. And, and this morning, I wanna talk about how we love one another through presence and truth. And I wanna talk about how we love the outsider through presence and truth. And I wanna show us that when we emphasize presence or truth at the expense of the other, we no longer are the aroma of the kingdom of God. Because as we can see in the life of Jesus, when we love with both presence and truth, it draws some and it repels others. So we are the aroma of the kingdom of God when we love one another with presence and truth. Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Look at this, verse 35. By this, all people, the world, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because when you love one another, it smells like God's kingdom. Right, the way that we love one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, broadcast a testimony to the world. So let's talk about our presence with one another. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that, with the exception of Jesus, it bluntly shares the flaws of all of its heroes. The Bible does not present most people in a super positive light, it's encouraging, but it shows us all the flaws. One of the greatest examples of this is Jesus with his disciples. Jesus picks 12 unremarkable young men and spends three years with them, discipling them, being long-suffering, being with them. And he wasn't just present with them physically, but spiritually and emotionally. He knew them. He knows these disciples and their stories and their fears and their flaws and their strengths. And I love the story of Peter walking on water in Matthew 14. Peter was always the overzealous guy that needed to try stuff, and if he was gonna learn, he needed to fail. You know, that's kind of Peter. I'm, I'm kind of like Peter. So Jesus knew this about Peter, and Jesus didn't know this about Peter just because he was all-knowing. Yes, he was, but it's because he was present with Peter. He had walked with Peter. He's seen Peter do this a dozen times. And so one day, the disciples saw that Jesus was walking on water, and guess what Peter does? Man, I gotta try that. So Peter's the guy that says, Jesus, let me come walk on water. So let's read the text. Matthew 14, starting in verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, 
walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus was present with Peter, physically and spiritually. Jesus knew that this was a moment that Peter was going to have in the water, that this moment right here, the sinking, the fear, being saved, he knew this was gonna be so significant to Peter's faith in the future. So look here, Jesus presence with Peter gives him credibility to speak truth to Peter in the moment, right? I didn't read all of verse 31. Look at this. Look at all of verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out of his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What does Jesus do? He speaks truth to Peter, a truth that probably was hard for Peter to swallow, probably injured his pride a little bit. But it was a truth that Peter needed to hear in this moment. And Jesus loved Peter in this moment through his presence and speaking truth. So just imagine with me if we loved each other like this. Being present with one another and speaking truth to one another. Because if you think about it, we have a hard time doing both. Right? In our culture, being present with one another is, is not a given. We, we're busy, our schedules are full. Right? Our devices and technology fracture our presence all over the place. And so not only are we not as present with one another physically, but also emotionally and spiritually, we just don't know each other that deeply. It's hard to do that nowadays. So presence takes intentionality and sacrifice. But what's also not helpful is being strong when it comes to our presence with one another and yet refusing to speak truth to one another. Because the reason we may be fearful about speaking truth to one another is we don't want to offend the other and risk the relationship. So it's easier to keep everything on the surface, to never challenge each other, to always make sure our presence with one another is light and easy. But the truth is, that's a facade, right? right? The relationship is a facade if you have to withhold truth to maintain presence. See, a healthy relationship has presence and truth. And so let me show you, here's why. Because, let's look at this, presence kills assumptions and truth kills the facade, right? When I'm present with someone, I know them deeply, then when I speak truth to them, it's not based off of false assumptions. It's based off of knowledge. For example, let's say you struggle with social anxiety, epidemic across our culture right now, and that social anxiety causes you to be be fearful of being with the church, coming, gathering, and a gathering like this, or going to different events. And if I had not had any presence with you, meaning not just physical presence, but we've gotten to know each other. And if I had not gotten to know that you had this struggle, I'm probably making all sorts of assumptions about you. I might assume you're standoffish instead of shy. I might assume you don't value the church. And so if I ever say something to you in the name of truth but have not been present with you, then I'm gonna deeply hurt you. That's what I'm gonna do, right? But here's the other thing. Truth also kills the facade. 
It makes the relationship real. It forces the relationship to deal with challenges and growth. So think of the same example. Let's say, I know your struggle. I know you. We've spent time together, and yet I never enter into that struggle. I never acknowledge to you that it's not good to neglect gathering with the church, as God's word says. And I try to help where I can, right? Is, is that relationship real if I never speak truth? Is our friendship so fragile that truth might break it? See, when the church can learn to love one another through presence and truth, we show something different to the world. We show that our love for one another is, is not a selfish love, but an otherworldly love, a, something that is only made possible by the gospel, because in the gospel, Jesus became a man and was present with us so he could offer himself on the cross to pay for our sins. And there is no truth that one could speak to us in the church that would be as humbling as the truth of the gospel. If you think about it, the most offensive thing we have to say is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we have to say that a man had to die in your place to cover you from your sins. That is glorious news, but that's also hard news because it says something about us, that we needed to be saved, that we needed help, that we couldn't do it on our own. That's how grave our sin was. That's how deeply Jesus loved us. So the gospel allows us to love one another and the gospel allows us to receive truth from another because being deeply loved and also being deeply challenged are not categories that are opposed to each other. Gospel people are humble people who can handle truth and we're in a culture that wants to say being deeply loved and also being deeply challenged are opposed to one another. And so learning to love one another in this way is also going to deeply impact how we love the outsider. And what I mean by the outsider is people who are outside the church, who don't believe in Jesus. Maybe they, they live in a different way. Whatever it is, it's gonna impact how we love them. If we look at Jesus, we see Jesus love the outsider with both presence and truth. How many times do we read in the Gospels about Jesus spending time with people who are not part of the religious in crowd? Jesus having meals, going to the houses of the big sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those who are considered unfaithful. How many times do we see the religious elite, the Pharisees, the fundamentalists chastise Jesus for being present with the outsiders? You know, the, um, the church has had an interesting relationship with outsiders. On one hand, there are many churches who see Jesus' presence with the sinful and broken. They read about this in the Gospels, how Jesus just so radically loved people, and it was so subversive in their culture. They read this about Jesus, and then what they do is they center all of their theology and practice around this one aspect of Jesus, right? That he, he was so inclusive. He just, he loved people so well, and so they, they kind of make that the center, right? Jesus ate with the people the fundamentalists despised, 
And they say, well, we're gonna be like Jesus and not the fundamentalist. Radically inclusive, accepting of all, affirming of every lifestyle. Jesus loved all, so we love all. The problem is they have emulated how Jesus was present with people on the outside, but ignored how Jesus spoke truth to them. And so they're not the aroma of Christ or God's kingdom. They're trying to be like a Cinnabon, attractive to all. Come in, we don't wanna do a thing, especially speak truth, that might offend, that might repel you. On the other hand, there are many churches who see how Jesus spoke truth, and they've centered all of their theology and practice around this. You know, those progressive churches caroling about being nice, but they don't speak truth. Well, we're gonna speak truth and we'll rebuke you if you disagree with us. But the problem is they've emulated how Jesus spoke truth to people, but not his presence with people. They're not the aroma of Christ either, not even close. In John 8, we read of the story of a woman caught in adultery. She's dragged in front of Jesus, shamed in front of crowds. Of course, they just dragged the woman and not the man. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to condemn her and pronounce a sentence of death upon her based on the law of Moses. And Jesus famously said to the crowd, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And obviously the crowd left. It's just Jesus and this woman standing there. Look at what Jesus says to the woman, John chapter eight, verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, no one, Lord. And, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Presence, grace, kindness, gentleness, and truth. Adultery is sin. Go sin no more. Over the last few decades, our country has been going through a moral shift you're probably aware. When I was in high school, if you cared about sexual purity, if that was a thing for you, if you had a sexual ethic, you were considered to be moral. Weird, but moral. You were the goody-goody. You could say that when it came to sexual ethics back then, just to make this more simple than it is, the right had the moral authority in our country. But that's changed now. Now, if you have a sexual ethic that contains any sort of limitation or constraints, then that is now considered immoral, offensive, even oppressive, right? The left has grabbed the moral authority when it comes to sexual ethics in our country. And so it can be very easy for people in the church to respond to this by believing that the, the right needs to claim back that moral authority in our country. We need to go back to the way it used to be. Not so fast. I think the extreme when it comes to the sexual ethics that we're seeing today on the left is a response to the extreme that we saw on the right in the past. Today, the left values presence, inclusion for all. Don't challenge, don't speak truth, don't risk offending but back then, when the right had the moral authority, there was a, a fear of presence. You had to accept the truth before we would get to know you and spend time with you. 
And a lot of people were burned by the church because of that. They were labeled so quickly and shunned so fast that they couldn't run out the door fast enough. Many people were repelled by the aroma of the church back then. But it was not the aroma of Christ. The left is always going to value presence and inclusion. The right's always going to value truth and exclusion. And, and Jesus shows us as a way where we can value both. They need to live in tension. And what that looks like is we can love people, serve people, spend time with people, be their friends, know them deeply, and also speak truth to them that they may not agree with or accept. These do not have to be competing realities as much as our culture wants it to be. So Grace Hill, you can come to this church if you're gay. You can come to this church if you struggle with your gender. You can come to this church if you're an addict. You can come to this church if you're prideful. You can come to this church if your marriage is on the rocks. You can come to this church if you don't believe in God. You can come to this church if you struggle with anger. You can come to this church if you're in legal trouble. You can come to this church if you are poor. You can come to this church if you're an undocumented immigrant. We want you here. You don't have to have it all together to be here. We want to know you. We want to befriend you. We want to share our life with you. We want to know your story. We want to share our story with you and where we struggle. We want to share meals with you and laugh with you. And at Grace Hill, we will preach the truth that we all need to hear from God's word. And that truth will challenge all of us and that truth will call all of us to repentance. It's because we love you. It's both presence and truth. If we emphasize presence at the expense of truth, we're not the aroma of Christ in his kingdom. Because in the kingdom of God, God is king. We're gonna live according to his ways, not ours, in God's kingdom. As Paul says in passage here in 2 Corinthians in verse 17, that would mean we were peddlers of God's word if we didn't preach Christ in the truth. Using it to draw a crowd, but not calling people to repentance. But if we emphasize truth over presence, then we are also not the aroma of Christ and his kingdom. Because in the kingdom, our performance is not a prerequisite for the grace of God. The truth is that all of us were loved by God, were recipients of his grace while we were still sinning. That's Romans 5. We were dead in our trespasses, but God did something, Ephesians 2. To emphasize truth over presence is to forget the gospel. And so, Grace Hill, here's my, my challenge to us this morning, my plea to us, what I wanna see this church do over the years as we get to do ministry here in this town is just I want us to be the aroma of Christ to the world. And when we're the aroma of Christ, it's messy because it takes presence and it takes truth. And that's going to draw in many and it's gonna make many upset. Is this a place where we love and are present with each other no matter what we're struggling with? Or do we put conditions upon presence? 
Is this a place where we speak the truth of God's word to each other and we receive it with humility instead of defense? Or is it a risk around here to speak truth? Is this a place where the broken and the guilty and the ashamed and confused and poor can come and receive the same kind of presence and love that we give to one another? Or are we uncomfortable with people who are different from us? Is this a place where we will not waver from the truth, even if the truth causes some to leave, as 2 Corinthians tells us will happen? Or are we too afraid of the rejection? Because when we love one another and the world with both presence and truth, we love as Jesus loved, and we spread the fragrance of the kingdom of God to this world. And Grace Hill, that is our mission here in Herndon. Let me pray that that is the kind of church that we'll be. Let's pray. Father, it is messy to be people who represent your kingdom in this world. Because this world is not like your kingdom. And as much as like we like to try to attach worldly categories to your kingdom, whether they're political realities or social realities or whatever, Lord, they, your kingdom is just not like any of them. And so, God, I just pray that we would be good with that, that we would be good with the messiness of being the aroma of Christ, the messiness of being radically present with people, people who will leave us, people who reject what we have to say, and also people, Lord, who will be drawn in and have their lives transformed by the gospel. I pray, Lord, you would help us to be bold in how we speak truth that we would not cower from your word or what your word has to say just because our culture doesn't agree. Lord, our culture will always not agree with stuff from your word. You told us that. You told us to expect it. You told us to expect that if they hated you, then they're gonna hate us. But God, help us not to pit those two against each other. Help us not to be these cold, people who speak truth but we're just relationally we so cold and unloving lord help us not to do that oh gosh lord help us not to help us not to be so prideful in our christianity in our ethics and our morality and we don't love people God, Lord, I also pray that we would be people who submit to you as our king. You are Lord, and you give us your word. So, Lord, help us to be radically committed to your word, not wavering. God, would you help us to strike the balance of being humble people who will never waver from your word? Oh, we need your spirit to help us with that, God, so that we can be the aroma of Christ. Make us the aroma of Christ in this town, God. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.